0: I still can't get the distinction between turtles and tortoises to stick in my head every time I see anything in that entire
1: with a shell on yep to me it's a turtle we call them in our house when my kids were little no thank you bites right you had to take a bite you had to decide whether or not you liked it and then you had to you know and then oftentimes they would take a bite and they go wait I I liked that
2: everyone welcome back to another episode of opening question a podcast of the tory honors college here at biola university i am ellie martin i am a staff member on, uh, at tory and also an alumni of the program and i'm here with our director dr paul spears and one of our faculty members dr fred sanders hello guys how you doing
1: doing well hi, hi
0: ellie how you doing well
2: good good wonderful to see you once again for another episode um, of our podcast our opening question for today um I've been thinking about this throughout all of the episodes that we've been recording um, and also chatting with my student workers and just around the office, general office life, um, is the question, lots of questions, what about answers? So a lot of our pedagogical technique here in Tori is to start session with questions. We spend a lot of time asking more questions throughout session. And sometimes sessions are quite inconclusive and you're just like, okay, well, three hours are up. The conversation's not over, but the three hours are up. So see you guys next time. Um, And I think that can be disorienting for some students. um, And if not corrected quickly, I think that disorientation can kind of persist for quite a while. Um, So my opening question for you guys today is lots of questions. What about answers? Well, what
1: do you mean about answers?
2: I I was gonna do a whole bit where I asked like a ton of questions, but I resisted. But
1: I clearly did not.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I think it's um, when you describe Tory's pedagogy to somebody, um, you can see them sort of get some sort of recognition and say, "Oh yeah, I get it." So you just your job is just to question everything and call everything into you know into account and point out the problems and maybe not actually have a position. And then then I have to jump in and say. No, no, no. That's, you might understand the tool, but not how we're using the tool. We're using a a, a technique, a pedagogical technique of questioning, um, both in terms of the actual sentences we say in class as faculty. They're mm-hmm. interrogative mm-hmm. sentences mostly, um, but also in terms of the overall shape of the education. It really is a, um, a, a deep dig into interrogating subject matters. The big difference is our, our goal is the pursuit of the truth. Uh, our goal is the mm-hmm. truth. We are engaged in the pursuit of the truth. And just a real easy organizing way to get at that is um, we're all committed Protestant, evangelical, Christian believers who, good heaven, sign a doctrinal statement every year. It's sort of as unsocratic as you could possibly get in terms of the actual architecture we're inhabiting. And we're not being subversive by putting together a pedagogical system in which we ask questions. This is our way of serving the commitments we have.
1: And part of that has to do with the fact that students come in with preconceived notions about the way in which the world is, and while they may be true, they don't know why they're true. And so one of the things that we're trying to do is uncover their their presuppositions, the ones that are that are actually valuable, true, accurate to reality, and then get them to think about well, I've always thought this was true, but is it really? And and if it is, what are the reasons? That is, what justification do I bring to the table to be able to correctly understand that? And, that, and questions are really a good way to get at um, the misconceptions or the weak understandings that they have about the world.
2: And from what you said about the fact that we all sign the doctrinal statement, that we all have the same basic um, worldview, um, I think that is really critical. I think it's really critical. I want to know what you guys think to make sure that everybody is on the same page in the classroom, because we have an expectation that you're coming to that. We're all coming to the text with a certain view of how the world works in mind, um, that we believe that there is truth to be found that authors can be right or wrong or some, you know, variation therein. um, And when everybody has that same, ground to stand on from the beginning i think it makes conversation a lot more productive
0: yeah and just to make a distinction between uh faculty and students biola faculty all sign a doctrinal statement um biola students are admitted uh sort of on on testimony right by by profession of faith uh, but aren't held to any particular doctrinal standard um so so we're not um Yeah, we're not having we don't have the same expectations, you know, of the incoming college students as we do with the tenure track faculty.
1: Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah, And and I think that one of the things that's happening, too, is that we have a, a really deep commitment that together we can be examining an idea or an argument and that. Because reality is such a thing that gives us all access to it, we can be working towards the same goal. It is not like, oh, your truth and your truth. There are all different sets of truths out there. There's, and there's occasionally students will say something like, well, then there's truth, but then there's big T truth. And we have to sort of, you know, then we have to go Socratic on them and saying, what would be the difference between truth and big T truth? And they state things like, well, you know, like true, true. And again, that's where the Socratic, and it's not really Socratic, but the dialogue driven. Um, push becomes really important. So say more about that. Say why you think that. What does it mean when you deploy that? And sometimes what you get students to recognize is that even having a discussion in class and the fact that we think it is actually effective and the fact that they've actually experienced it as effective is um, a tacit um, admission that the way in which we get at the world is pretty unified and the fact that even we can read books from, you know, 2,000 years ago and the way in which even those authors see the world and that we can what have some resonance with it mm-hmm. is actually also a testimony to the way in which um, reality becomes, what, available to us.
0: Mm. Yeah. So just to say out loud part of the great books tradition's commitment to, let, you know, why why would you do this? Why would you read a bunch of books and discuss them? Um, you know, proven text, classic text and all that. Um it's a commitment to the idea that these great texts are not disposable idea containers, right? If, if they were, you know, disposable idea containers, it would make more sense to crack them open, extract the ideas, deliver those in a simpler format, yeah, um, and move on. That would be a, a lot more efficient if that's the phenomenon we were dealing with. Um, in fact, there's a commitment that the uh, books of this caliber – have an excellence and a particularity and a weirdness and an angularity that the proper way to engage them for all they're worth is to get inside of them and dialogue about them.
1: And and wouldn't you say, Fred, complexity, right? In other words, one of the things that you get out of a modern textbook is all you're doing is looking for the basic facts that are embedded in the textbook. You extricate those from the textbook, and actually it even helps you by um, italicizing the things that you're (laughs) supposed to extricate. And so you actually don't even... You don't have to learn how to think about the argument that the author is making. You just look almost literally for the visual cues, and then you act accordingly to those. And And that's good textbooks, right? We're not even talking about bad ones. like (laughs) a really good
0: one intentionally rounds off all the weirdness, balances every statement, you know, um, spreads it around with kind of a comprehensive overview of how this relates to everything else. And you have literally no questions left at the Mm -hmm. end of reading a really good textbook. Right. That's it's designed to normalize everything so that there are no more questions to ask. Right. I can't imagine you couldn't actually run a Socratic session on a well prepared textbook. Right.
1: No, that's right. <laughs> but the funny thing is that when students and students that have been trained to use textbooks get to Tory and you know you get the Iliad and you open it up and there is nothing italicized in there. There are no clues, but then then they realize oh, there are other ways to get at the truth of ideas than merely being spoon-fed them um through the medium of a textbook and so starting to ask like oh i think what's going on is this what do you think that's the other piece right it's it's bouncing ideas off of each other trying to get clarity saying what do you see there what what do you understand there how do you grapple with the text and even coming to a sense of um, what agreement with each other about the nature of the thing that's going on in front of you. And and that becomes really important because the, a lot of the questioning is moving towards a certain refinement of an understanding of a passage saying, I think this is what's going on. What do you think? And then somebody will jump in and say, oh, yeah, this is what's going on. And, I, and somebody will say, wait, what we're missing, though, is this other page over here. And then you'll start building an idea that I don't think could happen without the mode of questioning going on.
0: So in actual practice, this often does look like something really frustrating. I mean, you know, a standard uh, student experience is you come to class, you're smart, you did the reading, you're, you know, conversant with all kinds of stuff, and you say, so Plato thinks there's a higher world in which the form of a chair is there, and all the chairs we see are, like, participating in the form of the chair, and then the professor just goes into hyper-annoying interrogative mode, right? Like, where does Plato say that? Oh, you mean one of the characters in this dialogue begins a paragraph by saying, "Let's imagine that it's this way," and then sketches out something like what you just said, but by the way, without ever mentioning chairs, it's a right. dead giveaway that you're looking at the secondary literature. Right. If you start talking about Plato's oh. chair,
1: oh, yeah, or or if you say something <laughs> like, "I'm being appeared to chairly,"
0: So it's hard to tell that kind of professor, you know, sort of our style of, you know, Tory honors college Socratic uh, uh, tutor tutoring, that's what we call it, <laughs> tutoring. Um, it's hard to tell that apart from the, um, you know, the philosophy professor who stumbles around from classroom to classroom and seems to question his own existence. <laughs> he's not sure he's there or you're there. And if you can actually get him to answer a straight question, like, what, what is the goal of our instruction, professor? It's like, well... That's what we're here to find out, you know?
1: (laughs) Then you want to ask, like, have you even prepped for this? (laughs) There there is a kind of
0: relativism that takes the entire goal of higher education to be simply dismantling all stable constructs. Sometimes that's for a political end, but sometimes it's just like an indoor sport that you're not sure why it's happening, and it can only happen in a very controlled environment.
1: And so that's when you want to start calling, this is a mess with freshman 101, (laughs) right? In other words, they... Because they, students have the right sense, like, I should get something out of this class. Now, they're not clear what the something is, and oftentimes what they do is they think the something is, is a list of facts. We, I mean, in our last uh, podcast, we talked about, like, going home and trying to tell your parents yeah. what was going on in class or what, what you've learned up to, you know, Thanksgiving. And I think that what everybody wants is a list of facts. And then you feel like, okay, something was accomplished here. And I think the same thing happens when you lean into um, asking questions. You want a certain kind of result, and it doesn't bring that kind of result. But I would argue because it isn't meant to.
2: So I don't know if this was other folks' experience when they started, Tori, but my experience was I think it was the first time that I was asked to contend with a argument, an argument um, that held a lot of weight and was very important, but was also not scripture. And the reason I say that is because I remember very strongly, (laughs) sorry, this is embarrassing, but um, first semester I I had a a moment where I was like, oh, that's right. Dante is not the Bible. So (laughs) I can... I can like not agree with him, but that was like very earnest. Like I actually had to take a step back and be like, Oh, just because somebody says something doesn't mean that it's true. Right. (laughs) I don't know if that's like really bad that I. No, no, that's really
1: important. I think that's a really important moment in, in one's intellectual development is like, I can actually wrestle with the text come to understand what the argument is inside of the text that is what is the author saying i i oftentimes like to say that what you want to do is you know share what you think is going on in inferno and if dante were there he would look at you and say yep yeah, that that is about right say it in italian but you know <laughs> whatever that would be um and and i think that's what our students misunderstand they they think that they have to agree with everything and yeah. what they need to do is understand the nature of the argument being made by the author. And then critique can happen. You can have all kinds of interesting conversations about whether or not that's an accurate depiction of whatever the author is arguing for. And then off you go, right? You realize, Oh, so there are steps. I can't just leap over like what Dante is saying. I have to actually contend with it. And then I make some moves about whether or not I think it actually is germane to the pursuit of reality. So I could see how you'd, get
0: that impression as a student, you know, that you had mm-hmm. to take these non-biblical texts yeah. with the kind of ultimate seriousness and, and you know, um, correctness, it's because uh, we use the same basic approach to a text using our Socratic method and our kind of presuppositions about what it's going to take to read this well. We use that same approach to the Bible and to other texts, um, both books that we think are, uh, you know, substantially right about what they're doing. Um, and books that we think are dangerous in certain ways. We, we bring the same set of, this is a great book and how are we going to handle it? We're going to handle it this way. I mean, a, an easy example is we always gamble on the coherence of the assigned text. Yeah, That's not because we think every text in the universe is coherent. People are writing bad books and contradicting themselves all the time, but the <laughs> select set of a few dozen books that have made it into what we get to do for four years. I don't know, maybe it's 50, a hundred. I don't know what it is. Anyway, um, it is best to gamble on them being coherent, as opposed to reading it and saying, oh, well, Dante contradicts himself here. You know, mm-hmm. Homer seems to be a, a, a band name for a group of minstrels sort of working <laughs> their way through the ancient world. And obviously, it's editorially sloppy. You'll just never get anywhere there. Like, if, if the text is contradictory, we should have eliminated it from the reading list. Um, now... You, you make that gamble on coherence and eventually you might have a text in front of her. You have to admit, yeah, actually, Homer does nod now and then. Dante didn't quite polish the last bit of the yeah. Divine Comedy. You know, there are some moments where you can point out tensions and irregularities and even contradictions within some of these books. But generally, especially for young people, it is not safe to reach for that tool right away and say, I bet the author's contradicting himself. Yeah. It's more likely that you're reading poorly than that Kant actually contradicted himself.
1: Well, and, and it's not only that. There is a, uh, what, an expediency in the mind of students to quickly make a judgment, a sort of binary judgment, is this good or is this bad? Yeah. Is, mm-hmm. And then you want to say, well, A, it's more way more complicated than that. And the fact that you just want to make a quick judgment, like, Wait is is Dante, isn't he Catholic or something? like should we listen to him because he's Catholic and sure. you, you have students will say things like that, and you're like, so I'm not sure if that matters and the question is is he accurately depicting something that we should be wrestling with because it's important in terms of the way in which humans get at their own nature right so part of what I have to remind students is this is a pursuit of a uh, the understanding of what it means to be a human and what it means to flourish as a human. And so there are lots of people who are wrestling with this question that have done significant works that have changed the, really the face of the the intellectual world that we would want to know about because it plays a role rather overtly or tacitly in the culture that we live in. And so getting at those questions becomes radically important. It's not just because you want to act elitist and say, oh, I have read Dante. Dante. No, no, no. We're like, no, you, you read Dante because it matters to who you are as a person.
0: And it is important in the, in the classroom, in the session that students bring to the surface these burning questions that really matter to them. Mm-hmm. Even if the professor then has to, without being too condescending about it, you just got to step in and say some form of your question in its current form is so ambiguously stated that it cannot be answered meaningfully. Now you know sometimes you totally conceal that the fact that that's what you're really saying, and other times you just go for it. Like here, man, I'm a college professor. I am gonna, I am gonna deliver the line, because <laughs> if somebody asks, "Hey, wait, isn't Dante Catholic?" Um, okay, that matters a lot. It's a good question. I would hope a Protestant evangelical would register that and have questions about it, but, but in that form. Right, you, you've got to start immediately taking apart. Like, well, when was the Reformation? Well, how far before the Reformation do you think people count as not Protestant? What do you think of an author who puts a pope upside down in hell and is protesting for reform <laughs> of the See of Peter? Right. Like, like we, we, you're noticing something important, but like asking it that way, it's literally unanswerable.
1: But they're just thinking it's the switch. So just tell me yeah, yeah. if he's Catholic, then I can just turn the switch off. <laughs> and, and, and what you're doing is you're trying to get at So there's a lot of complexity there, and the question you're asking is I can see why that might be helpful in some ways in terms of the way in which you can move through it interpretively, Mm -hmm. but you're not there yet. Like, that question is way down the line um, because you don't even have mastery of the text as it sits by itself. You're bringing in outside information that may not be germane at this point to the argument that Dante's making.
0: It's a weird dance, but I mean, the whole whole project wouldn't work if students weren't Motivated by burning questions like that, yeah. Even absolutely. though the next thing that has to happen is like,
1: oh, I see, I was asking that wrong. And I think that what you're pointing at the burning, <laughs> the burning in their bosoms, as yeah. we would say, is is what that's curiosity, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. You and want them to just, do that.
0: Yep. It's also just where you're coming from, right? I grew up making no mm-hmm. distinction between turtles and tortoises. I still can't get the distinction between turtles and tortoises to stick in my head. Every time I see anything in that entire
1: with a shell on.
0: Yep. To me, it's a turtle. And and if you correct me and say it's a tortoise, I, I I humbly acknowledge that you're right. I've rehearsed the distinction between the two, but it's just not part of my basic way of approaching the world. And so... You know, it's an area in which I will just continue to be inaccurate until I successfully reform my epistemic structure. Well,
1: I'm glad that we brought that uh, to this place where we can talk about that because this is really more of an intervention about your turtle, tortoise yeah. problem. If if
0: I were just belligerent and dogmatic about it and said, "No, you tortoise people, you're lying. It's a
1: conspiracy,"
0: that would be like, "No, I, I ideally I should correct my classifications."
1: Yeah, your taxonomy less, is my is taxonomy not... is yeah
0: underpopulated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> if i'm not going to go to that effort and apparently i'm not um i should at least humbly admit that i'm wrong and everyone else out there making the distinction is right
1: or that you just haven't you have chosen not to pursue that level of thinking mostly i don't care right well and but i also tell students it's okay to not care about some things (laughs) you have to i mean there are lots of ideas in the world that are um unimportant that you could get lost in. And then there are ideas that you really should know about because they play a significant role in the way in which you navigate your existence. And that's and that's one of the things that we wanna do is like, which of these questions that we're pursuing in class is actually important? Mm. And why are they important? And that forces the students to what? Assess their own um, internal commitments and paradigms, and then what? Scrutinize them at a very high level ask themselves hard questions about why that matters to them yeah. and why that should matter to everyone else in the room, as a matter of fact.
0: And the, the question is just the, the coin of the realm. Like it is the one yeah. tool of choice for pursuing that kind of clarification.
1: Right. And, you know, you could start getting into the weeds about this, but human beings are distinction makers. They're like, is it this? Or is it that? <laughs> is it this? Or is it that? And you ask that question all the time. You don't ask it overtly, but, you're saying, is this good for humans or is it not? Or is this a true representation of this idea or is it not? Um, And and one of the things that we're wanting them to do with questions is to use that tool to make important uh, distinctions between things that are accurately, um, what, depicting the way in which things truly are. And that's, but, but that's really important to be able to do that and to see that tool as not something that is just, what a bad coffee shop moment where people are smoking closed cigarettes and going, well, what is that anyway? Right. That is actually, no, it's a real tool that gets at the fundamental nature of our, of our realities.
2: And I think we ask students to withhold judgment on a text like, well, I don't agree with that. Or, well, I don't think he's right there. Or, well, I don't know. Like we don't really allow students to do that in class. Um, so for me, it went from like the movement I had to make was, oh, right. Everything's not inerrant. Okay. So I should be able to like disagree with some things. And then the move is to, okay, now I understand that we are here to talk about the ideas of the text in front of us, not to talk about whether we agree with them or not here in class. Like that's not the point of class is to decide whether or not we agree personally.
0: Yeah, and even even at a lower level than agree-disagree is the like-don't-like like distinction, which every, every tutor has to decide. Really, every class has to, every cohort has to decide for themselves. Do you sort of happen to mention what you like or don't like when you come into class and then get it out of your system because you know, like, that doesn't matter, right? Oh, I didn't <laughs> like it. Great, who cares? Let's talk about it. Right? Like your like, your thumbs up or thumb down click is not really relevant to what we're going to spend the next three hours doing. Or the other route you could go is um, do not permit it at all, you know, sort of as a tutor or even as a sort of community standard of the cohort. We do not permit people to come into this classroom and begin announcing what they like or don't like, or even necessarily what they agree or disagree with. Yeah. Um, You either stifle it or decide it's it's unstifleable. Let me get out of my system. Okay.
1: Yeah, but I also think that students have to move away from the fact that something that they're unfamiliar with often leads them to Hmm. saying, Oh, I don't like that. Why don't you like it? Well, it seems a hard and B it's unfamiliar. And I don't know if I want to work that hard. So I'm just going to dismiss it. So I don't have to do the work that's necessary to actually engage it to see if it's valuable. They just, they act a little bit like, and we all do this at times, right? We You act a little bit like a, a three-year-old who doesn't like that food but doesn't know why, yeah. right? And you're like, no, you've, we call them in our house when my kids were little, no thank you bites, right? You had to take a bite. You had to decide whether or not you liked it. And then you had to, you know, and then oftentimes they would take a bite and they go, wait, I I liked that. And you're like, right, because you now have had an experience with food but with an idea um that it that you realize now oh that was so important i didn't understand that and part of what happens in class is the the veil of like don't like is removed mm-hmm. and then the thing itself is revealed and then it harmonizes with the um what the humanness of the readers mm-hmm. and you're like oh my goodness that is so important i would have never mm-hmm. thought of it like that until we got into conversation yeah
2: mm-hmm.
1: and you can make statements like
0: I don't like this book, but it has enforced a way of thinking on me that I knew I had to take on board and live with. Or I don't like this book, but it's life-changing. Or Milton is an annoying jerk and the greatest poet.
1: Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Sometimes I've even said to cl- in class, like, this text makes me so uncomfortable. <laughs> and And part of the reason it makes me so uncomfortable is now I am coming face-to-face with something that I have Heretofore ignored or um, denied or done <laughs> what other psychological, um, you know, gymnastics I do to not take that on as a significant aspect of who I am, mm-hmm. and I'm like, oh, this thing just grabs me and pushes my face right into it and says, "Look at that!" And you're like, oh no, can we, can we change the subject? And the great thing about a book like that is, no, you can't, because you're actually trying to understand the book, mm-hmm. you're not trying to avoid um, your own psychological issues, because there's like there is some nice distance there but if you actually sit with it if you abide in it right um then you realize man that is that is way too telling about the, the nature of the person that i am as i read these texts
2: i think i've told this story before about how i hated reading bacon i think that was my absolute least favorite read of the entire curriculum um and Greg Peters came into our session and he was like, this was the worst reading <laughs> because <laughs> it was the first time he read it. And he was like, that was terrible. Um, and we all laughed and thought it was like hilarious because we all thought the same thing. Um, but we didn't mention that again. Like we're like, okay, now get to it. Mm. You know, like now we're going to talk about it. Yeah. And as it turns out, like even though I didn't enjoy reading Bacon at all, Bacon is super important in the history and development of natural philosophy and science. You know, yeah. you, you can't not contend with bacon if yeah. you need to know oh, about Oh, and everybody history. likes
1: bacon anyway. Uh, no, sorry, I, couldn't, I couldn't, yeah. couldn't, couldn't avoid
2: that. Sorry.
0: low <laughs> hang hanging fruit. I will say that um, every now and then it's good to, when you can tell the class has had a pretty uniform reading experience, it's good to clear the air by just admitting like, hey, this part of City of God was no fun to read but great to have read. You know, like the actual page turning experience was a, a little crazy making, but boy, now that it's in the rearview mirror and I'm someone who has read that section, it, it informs my, my thinking. I will say that in general, uh, Dr. Peters is being a little bit of a bad boy there. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I think that's the fun of it. Um, in general, Tory tutors tend <laughs> to take on that. I'm going to pretend I enjoyed this, whether I did or not. It's just a yeah, question of whether you can true. sell it, right? I taught middle school art appreciation for a while and I think about half of the Impressionism is too pretty, you know, like Mm. not into it. Um, I mean, the other half is amazing and everyone ought to, you know, uh, only only a Philistine could not appreciate it. But you really love water lilies, right? But when I'm the the person who gets to show the seventh graders Impressionism, I am going to pretend it is my favorite art. You know? So something like that is part of the pedagogical package
1: here. I just want to point out, since we're it's a podcast and you couldn't see it, when I said that about the water lilies, the face that Fred made was one of <laughs> disgust. So I, I just oh, want to.
0: Your observation is too ambiguous to really respond to. <laughs> there are different sorts of water lilies. That is that is true, but he knew
1: what I meant. I think
0: I'm trying to remember. I, I think I was in a museum with um, Melissa Johnson, our dean, a alum, um alum. And we were looking at some impressionism under natural light, and clouds you know sc- scudded across the English sky as they tend to do. Mm-hmm. And all the colors and the painting in front of us changed. And I think I gasped mm. aloud. <laughs> which is not, not my standard way of being in the world. But it was just, uh, I mean, it, it was like you were looking at a movie instead of a flat canvas. I mean, all, all the colors just danced around. Anyway, that kind of experience is waiting in impressionist paintings for people. And when I'm showing them to seventh graders, I'm going to try to you know open up their eyes to this world of that kind of painting. Same thing with Tory books. Unless you cross the line and realize we all hated reading Bacon so much, I might as well just say it out loud. yeah Yeah. and if there's one student who disagrees you know hand them the mic and let them say why what's why they're so messed up that they enjoyed that
1: but it is it is (laughs) part of that is is a recognition of um of the weakness of your own um capacities and um, understandings and even your willingness so so one of the things that you're doing even if you go in like like dr peters did and admits that there's something tacit in there where everybody's like, okay, so you admitted it, but we all agree that that's not the right way to go about this. So we're going to go into the text and we're going to we're going to really wrestle with it. So he he said the thing, but he gave it the honor. So yeah,
2: exactly, like yeah, we we then he was he he then said like, all right, well let's talk about it. You know, like that was it. That was that was the beginning of the conversation, not the end of the conversation. Right.
1: Lewis talks about the fact that he does not like to be in the world of little children, mm-hmm. but he says oh, but I know that that means there's something wrong with me. So you can admit where your lackings are uh, and, and still engage the text in a deep way. And so it isn't about like what my favorite flavor is. It's actually about what's the most human thing I can do and how do these texts wrestle with that. And if they are really effectively doing that, then I ought to be engaged with them, even if it's not the first thing that I think about doing during my leisure time.
2: I also think another thing that is worth saying out loud is the sheer amount, the sheer quantity of new ideas that students (sighs) are being fire-hosed with. Mm, Like, for instance, um, raised Baptist over here, grape juice and and crackers for communion, absolutely no wine. Um, And then, you know, you read uh, Calvin, et cetera, et cetera, Luther, and you're like, not only could there be wine, there could be wine with more than a symbol there could be wine with spirit presence. There could be wine and bread with the real and full body of Christ. And it's like the amount of options that you have to choose from. And so I, I think the experience of that, I think can be a little, um, what's the word paralyzing mm. yeah. for students because it's like, I thought that there was only one way to think. Aren't we all Protestants? <laughs> right. And then, you know, you're sitting in class, you're like, I believe in the real presence. And you're like, walk it back, walk it back. Yeah. Um and, and so I think for students, the, it's like, I didn't even know that I even had the option to think that yes. way. And so if there are those options and people believe those options, what am I supposed to do? Are any of them true? Yeah. I think, I think it's actually, it was paralyzing mm. for me. Um, that one stuck out. Cause I actually do remember having that conversation in our Calvin sessions. Um but that is one example of literally hundreds of ideas that you're encountering in Tory over your four years.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's and that benumbing or paralyzing element of it. You know, you come in basically sort of with the turtle tortoise distinction and you're asked on on the Lord's Supper, it's like it's either a mere sign or it is trans you know, um, uh transformed into the literal body and blood of Jesus. Um right. and those are the two options. So which is it? <laughs> And yeah, then you right. think, well, look, I'm not like hiding anything. It's just there are a number of other considerations yes. between those polls um, that, you know, and then you say real presence and you think you said transubstantiation and it just takes some time like, all right, let's read a couple, yeah. l- read a couple of Anglican documents here. Like this is yeah. clearly not transubstantiation, but it is real presence, et cetera. Anyway, the result of that sort of dive into a number of distinctions and options is, it can be a, a sort of a a parale- a paralysis um, or a uh, let a thousand flowers bloom. Like, oh, I just found out there's nine categories, so I guess nothing can be true.
1: Yeah, <laughs> right,
2: right. And we don't have we don't have a professor standing in front of the classroom saying this is the right one, yeah. and they are yeah. like, yeah. oh, this phew, is the way. Good. right. I don't need to think about it. <laughs> yeah. So, I've had, thanks for that.
0: I've had times training new faculty, and and especially we don't have a lot of adjunct faculty, but you know we've got some good ones. Um, where one of the main things they're trying to get their mind around for leading a Tory session is, okay, so everyone's saying all sorts of stuff and we're running around in circles all through the text and it's all great and very high level, but when do you tell them what the truth is? (laughs) And and I've had to sort of break the, what seems like bad news, like you actually don't mostly. I mean, it's very rare. Every now and then someone can be so wrong about something with such an immediate spiritual danger that you sort of need to,
1: symbolically
0: of take off the Socratic veil and let them know, I need to talk to you about this. Sometimes you can do that by giving a tiny, tiny, I want to say lecture. I mean, that's what it is, right? A yeah. series of true sentences that I'm advocating for the truth as you see it. Um, sometimes you can say, I would be glad to talk with you about this in office hours and you'd better go immediately add a few more office hours to that week. Um, uh, other times you can just bluntly declare, um, well, we reached a conclusion which just isn't right and, you know, good job on the process, but we came out the wrong end of it. Yeah. I, years ago, I had a session with students on Locke, and these are intelligent students. Some of these people went on to get graduate degrees in philosophy, um, but they read it and decided that he really liked innate ideas. <laughs> and for three hours, I was—I broke a sweat. I was problematizing that. I was <laughs> asking him questions. I was pointing to sentences, um, and we just couldn't get anywhere. They just were sure that John Locke was in favor of innate ideas. So we finally got to the end, and I had worn myself out, you know, and I had decided I will not lecture. I'll just keep asking questions. Nothing worked. So I had to end by saying, well, the conclusion you've come to is the opposite of what every other reader who's ever picked up this text came to.
1: But good job. (laughs) (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. I
0: think you're wrong. Everyone else thinks you're wrong. Locke thinks you're wrong. I don't know what to really do with that. And they were kind Mm -hmm. of mad at me, like, why didn't you tell us? before this, this is, you know, it's the end of the session. I'm like, oh, it's not my job to tell. I mean, we've got the text in front of us. If, if you can't hear Locke, why would you believe me?
1: Yeah. <laughs> One, the other thing I was thinking about, and I think that's really a good moment where you realize that sometimes, well, and it's going to be more seared in their memory too, actually, positively, <laughs> right? Where they're going to be like, oh, yeah, this could really happen. I could really misunderstand. Not only can I, but a group of us can misunderstand, even though we're trying really hard. And and actually, that's not a failure either, right? And so, oftentimes, what students think about too when they get to the truth is that was successful, and that whatever goes on in class that doesn't yield some sort of um, mm. two or three sentence claim uh, is then unsuccessful. And so, what we're trying to say is, no, no. What's actually happening is, well, I like to describe to students this way: there are um, there are um, Known unknowns, right? There are things that you know you don't know, like I don't know quantum physics. Um, I kind of know what quantum physics is. I don't know. I don't have a deep understanding of it. But then there are things that the students, and we were talking about this earlier, I think, um, but not this explicitly. There are things that students don't know that they don't know and that they need to know. And one of the things that um, engaging texts like this and asking questions, um, it, what? It exposes the way in which um, the world exists, but they have not thought of it conceptually yet. They mm-hmm. have they have not engaged that category. They have not thought about the fact that things like there are things called circles, and they're not one instantiation of it. You can and you, know, you can think of it mathematically. You can think of it physically, and then there's this nature thing, this thing called circles. And they're like, wait, what? And you start talking to them about the different ways of talking about reality. Um, And they just haven't conceived of it yet. That's not bad. And actually that's a great opportunity because now they've been disabused of a, they haven't even been disabused. They've been exposed to an idea that is a necessary thing for them to be able to navigate the world effectively because it's an important category. But there's a lot of things out there that they haven't yet engaged and that's okay. But I would just add that questions are the tool by which that happens. If I just tell them things, they don't feel it in the same way. They don't experience it in the same way as if their discovery of a of a new idea, a new concept, or something that they're lacking that the the aha moment, even if it's a negative aha moment, like wait, I didn't know I had to know that thing. I didn't know I like I didn't even know that existed. Like okay, let's back that up. Those things are actually significant moments when they're done not because somebody told them to think that but because in their own investigation they've come upon it and they've come to realize, in light of their, what, intellectual adventure, that this becomes radically necessary.
0: Yeah. I the question-answer back and forth, you know, if you think about a three-hour session just as one one slice of a, a Tory education, um, you can reach conclusions, true conclusions and yeah. solid answers um, at various points throughout it. Um, I guess there's an ideal dramatic Tory session that, that – um, begins with a real mind blowing opening question, proceeds through lots of, you know, populating your mind with lots of alternatives and, and questions and going in circles. And then, uh, you know, rising pressure, rising tension, and then ends with, yes, this is the answer. We right. got it. Boom, <laughs> let's sing the doxology and leave class. <laughs>
1: right. Um,
0: that can that happen. Never happened.
1: Well, it never yeah. happens. It, it,
0: it sometimes happens. There, there are these wonderful, you know, last 20 minutes of class breakthroughs and there are various ways to engineer you know, or increase the odds of uh, yeah. the options of that happening um but you can also get to a solid answer about an hour in and then move on to the next thing and uh, you know i i'll I'll try without ceasing to be socratic. I'll try to stop class when we hit a really good answer and say, "Let us take our winnings off the table right now, you know mm-hmm. to use it kind of a gambling metaphor <laughs> let's um let's just admit that we just found something true. We made some progress, we put things together, and this truth has become evident to us. Um, can someone paraphrase it? Who can say what we just learned? What was that? Hmm. Was Okay, I think we can't be robbed of that anymore. But now I have a harder question, right? And then we descend <laughs> right back down into the abyss. Right,
1: right. <laughs> right. well, that's um, right. But just it leads you to we, something. Yeah, right? yeah.
0: But we had, you know, the when do we have an answer? When do we have a question? Th- those can be deployed in different ways in, in hmm. the course of an education. Not just in session, but across
1: a semester, across the whole four years. And, and I think the other piece of this is that it cements um, the importance of um, not knowing and that it's actually okay. Mm-hmm. That it, it actually cements the fact that when you are curious about something and when you're willing to pursue it into the, the, the dark abyss of the unknown, um, that that is not an indictment on your capacities or abilities. It actually is a place where courage exists and where um, your pursuit of that thing shows that you are actually invested in getting at the truth. And so what it does is it sort of pushes up against um, what I would say would be a modern educational convention, which is you need to know all the answers. You need to perform and you know, repeat those answers. That's what's really true. And then you move on once you've sort of mastered that set of, of, of information. And here it's like, nope. Even when you master sets of information, it's only a tool by which you engage the next cool thing that you don't know anything about or that you don't know enough about, that you're now curious about. You wouldn't even have known to be curious before. And now you actually know and you're like, oh, let's, let's jump in with both feet on that because this is going to be a real amazing experience as we uh, – unfold that idea
2: we're quickly running out of time but there is one more thing i want to talk about before we finish um which is i think you mentioned at the beginning fred how we uh read scripture and the difference between reading scripture and uh reading the other texts and just to frame that you know like i said when i started i had to be disabused of the notion that all texts were inerrant it's like oh okay i can i can read homer and he's not jesus okay that's good to know um and then you kind of you kind of remove yourself from that and and you think, okay, well, I can question what's in these texts. And then th- I think the the issue becomes when you take that all the way and you're like, okay, well, there's some truth, some not truth in all of the texts that we read and in, in that's all of the texts that we read. And I think the danger is that you can then just apply that hermeneutic to scripture. Um, So I want to talk about that and that we don't apply that to scripture and we do believe it's inerrant and we do believe um that it has the gospel and the truth in it
0: yeah yeah and it's important to um be who we are and also be intellectually honest about this and you know discern in ourselves when we've got bad habits of hiding from the truth just by like constantly pushing the yeah but the whole Bible's true like okay (laughs) like don't don't use that in such an anxious way yes the whole bible is true Um, (laughs) um one one thing to say is that Partly, it's still just good inductive reading of the text. Like the Holy Scriptures considered canonically, um, make higher claims for their own truthfulness, reliability, and um, intertextual reliability. You know, I'm, by which I mean, um, sorry, I should have completed that first sentence. Make higher claims than the other text we are reading uh, for for their own reliability. So even intertextually, when I say we gamble on the coherence of any book we read. We, that's true, but we don't gamble on the coherence of every book we read with every other book we read. Like, you know, Descartes and Locke disagree. Um, Homer and Virgil have some things they want to fight about. They they think different nations are the greatest nation in the world. Um, that You don't get that kind of intertextual coherence. With the canon of scripture, we we do read it. I think we read it well to say, oh, there is intertextual canonical coherence. So our our gamble on coherence is broader and more comprehensive. Yeah. And in the first semester, we read Genesis and we read Hebrews, and there are claims being made about Melchizedek, um, which aren't immediately self-evident, right? You have to lean into both of them and co-read Genesis with Hebrews um, in a way that gambles on their coherence. But that's one thing to say about it. I would want to defend that it's a— it's a better reading of the actual text to treat it that way. So we have internal reasons for doing so. If we had sessions on something like the Quran, and if the Quran itself advanced high claims, um, you know, of the nature that we associate with Islamic theology abroad, then it would be similarly good to read it with a higher standard. Not to say that, oh, this too is the absolute truth, because that's not gonna be coherent um, with our other claims, but yeah. On the Homer level, I'd also say, like, it begins with an invocation of the muse, and I'll sometimes push the question, even with first semester freshmen, first couple sessions, is this an inspired text? Mm -hmm. Which, by which, of course, I mean, does it even claim to be inspired? And if it does, should that change how we read
1: it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, that's so, what, it's hard for students to wrestle with in a world like ours, where, um saying everything is mostly opinion. I mean, you call it truth, mm-hmm. but it's mostly opinion and we're not actually able to um, ascertain what is effectively truth. You, you might accidentally get to it, but eh, it's probably just narrowly, you know, individualized your perspective. Uh, and it probably works for you. But no, we're saying, no, you know, you get to, to things like, like John in Genesis, where the claims are, no, the God of the universe Made everything, and you are responsible in your behavior towards those claims. And so, uh, the texts, um, a lot of the texts we read don't make that strong of a claim. Like, oh, right. So here's God, the creator of all things. Now, what <laughs> is the question, right? And uh, obviously, there's a lot more complexity there. But you're not even opening up, you know hume and getting that kind of thing he's going after a certain kind of project and i think one of the distinctions to be even in the in the scriptures is i mean if you're asking the question about what it means to be a human that is so you know that's so deeply inside of what's going on in the scriptures um in a way that no other text even some of the best texts that i love like i love augustine's confessions i love you know i love aristotle i think that they they do a lot but like Right. But the, the ultimate coherence that's going on inside of the scripture and actually feeds into the way in which we oftentimes read other texts like, oh, OK, so now I can see why Aristotle could say the thing he said. Or, oh, I can see why, you know, you know, Augustine says what he says and confessions are city of God, because he's actually trying to build a wholly coherent understanding of our existence in light of this God of the universe.
2: And to totally steal what you said, Paul, before we started recording today um we we don't teach questioning to just to have students spend their lives questioning like that's not that's not the purpose of why we have that pedagogy we question for refinement that's what you right. said before we started yeah yeah, and I think that's really good and I think that really hits on it like we, we don't just want to create questioners for the rest of your life you know like there is truth to find um the purpose of questioning is to find it yeah. all right thanks guys for our time we'll see you next time on opening question
1: Unless it's doing hip, (laughs) pop, hippity hop. Hip, hip, hippity hop.
2: Hip, hip, hop, and it don't stop.
1: Pop, pop, hippity pop. (laughs) See, uh, some people are finding that funny. The tech people in the room right now don't (laughs) look like they're having much fun. (laughs) I'm so
2: over (laughs) it. People. Person. Plural.
1: (laughs) Peoples. The peoples. Poison.